This is the Instrumental Music Curriculum Podcast from Valdosta State University. I am Dr. Benjamin Harper. Today, lesson planning and warm-ups with a discussion on choosing good music with Dr. Chad Simons. So effective rehearsals start with score study in advance. Too many band directors will sight read with their students, and this is just kind of frankly unacceptable. It's kind of like being a language arts teacher and reading The Grapes of Wrath with your students along the way and trying to plan out discussions for what you're currently reading. You can't really guide a curriculum or guide a lesson plan unless you know what's coming. First of all, with a lot of band directors, there's no such thing as throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. A lot of band directors will choose music, uh, a wide variety of stuff from their library, and have the band sight read it, and they'll uh, cycle music in and out until they find something that's uh, what we call a good fit. This is not a really good way to run a curriculum because there, that what that says is that there's no foresight in planning sometimes. And that's not to say that some band directors aren't choosing good music for let's see what fits sort of a deal. But uh, sometimes what they're doing is they're choosing from a selection of music, these four or five pieces. Let's see how the band reacts to this. And I think that's a valid way to go about things. But I also, the type A personality in me says, hmm, there has got to be a more effective way. Second, uh, there is no such thing as a rebuilding year. A lot of band directors will say, man, I lost a whole bunch of seniors and now I really just don't know what music to choose. False. You know exactly who's graduating, when they're graduating, and what's coming into your program. And, and that those things help determine long-term planning of your curriculum, but they don't determine year-to-year planning. And so you basically basically the theory is you gotta teach who's there. You need to teach the curriculum to the students who are in your room. And does that mean you may have to swap out some music you thought you were gonna be able to do for something uh, from another limited selection of different pieces that might be a better fit? Yeah, that makes sense. But you don't plan an entire year on the fly or based on the students that show up on the first day of class. You have to plan long-term. You're thinking the long game. As I like to say, kind of jokingly, it's the long con. How are you going to play this long game to achieve your desired uh Uh, your desired outcomes. Another way of thinking about it is some of you have heard about game theory, where you're thinking way down the road and trying to game out the ultimate outcome that you want to achieve. And you do a variety of things between point A and the end of the game to to achieve your desired outcome. That's called game theory. And sometimes the long con and game theory are associated with bad outcomes or very 
manipulative ways of getting to the desired result. But honestly, what are you doing as a teacher, really? You're manipulating students through the Socratic method by giving them information and manipulating them to get them to come up with their own brand new information. They're kind of going through the analysis and synthesis and um, evaluation steps of Bloom's taxonomy on their own. You're just guiding them in that process. So the long con and the game theory, it doesn't matter uh, what music you choose. Well, it does matter, but you're not going to change it based on who's there every year. And you're not going to throw spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks as a part of the long con and the game theory side of things. You are planning way in advance and preparing yourself way in advance to achieve the desired outcomes. Now, one of the desired outcomes that you, that you need to have is that you know the score and you need to know the score well in advance. And we've talked about this before where you need to score study and you should ideally start score studying no less than six months in advance. And that's even for the easiest pieces. If you're a beginning band director or a middle school band director, you can score study way, way, way in advance and know the piece like the back of your hand so that your performance is basically... Your performance is the first day of class. The actual performance six or eight weeks later is the student's performance. You're guiding them to their performance. You've already had your performance on the first day of class. So in your lesson plans, you need to have specific and measurable objectives otherwise known as goals. What are you going to achieve with this lesson? And and just for my sake, when I am going to be observing you and you hand me a lesson plans, there's certain things that I need to see. And when I say specific and measurable, I mean very specific. I need to know measure, measure numbers. I need to know which instruments, what are the musical concepts you're working on? What are the potential issues here? What are the potential solutions, et cetera? I also need to know what does the outcome look like? Really, what I want to know is how will you, as the teacher, know when students are proficient at whatever you're trying to accomplish? You also, I've already alluded to this a little bit, you need to identify potential problems and have potential solutions ready to go. You need, in the potential problems, you need to say where in the music, who who might have the problem, and what the problem might be. And then for the solutions, you need to have three different solutions ready to go. So if solution A doesn't work, then you move on to solution B. And if solution B doesn't work, you need to move on to solution C. And if that doesn't work, usually, and for my taste, I usually will move on and come back to the problem tomorrow, having rethought it out and come up with brand new solutions. So when I when I see your lesson plans, I want it, I want very specific and very measurable objectives with measure numbers, instruments, musical concepts. What does it look like when the outcome has been achieved by students and they're proficient at it? And I want to know what the potential problems are. What are they? Who's going to have the problems? And what are the potential solutions? Now, lesson plans are literally just that. They are plans. Things often derail the plan 
almost on a daily basis. You just need to remember to go with the flow and adapt for tomorrow. Your lesson planning, not rehearsal planning. Let me ask this question again. Are you a music teacher or a band director? Are you teaching how to play the music or are you teaching how to perform the music in a deep and musically meaningful way? What musical concepts are you teaching on a daily basis? And always ask yourself, Am I teaching students to the best of to be the best musicians they can be or am I being the best musician I can be for my students? I'm a big believer in the warm up process. I believe in warming up and building ensemble fundamentals is the most important thing you can do as a music teacher. I believe 40 to 50 percent of your rehearsal time should be dedicated to warm up and fundamentals. Let me say that again, 40 to 50%. That would scare a lot of people, but it doesn't scare the capable music teacher who understands that everything we teach about musical and fundamental ensemble skills directly translates later on to music we will perform. There are varying theories on the warm-up process, and the one that I present here for you today is just one of many. You're allowed to pick and choose from varying methods and create your own. My warm-up process when I was teaching public school had two components. The first was the individual warm-up, and this is what students do when they come into the room before rehearsal starts. I put it up on the board, and they know exactly what they're working on when they sit down. This also includes what concepts that they're going to be thinking about on the warm-up. So I might say, trumpets, as you work on your warm-up sheet, you are thinking about tone production and where your tongue placement is as a part of the airstream. I don't know. Something to give them focus to why I'm warming up while I warm up on these exercises. And this is the part of rehearsal where students are literally warming up their instrument so it can be in tune later on. And they're literally warming up the muscles, the fine motor skills that are needed for rehearsal. The second part is the ensemble warm up. And this is where students are going to warm up their ears and their minds. So I really encourage you to create individual warm-up sheets for every instrument that students can work on before the ensemble warm-up portion of rehearsal. So for example, these warm-up sheets, we've talked about them a little bit, but here's a couple examples. For trumpet, I'm a trumpet player, so this makes sense to me. I would include scales as a part that are coming up on a future playing test. I would include Clark studies, probably Clark study number two. Da 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 And they can do a variety of things with that at a variety of different tempos. I would include low register playing or for the advanced players, maybe some pedal tone work. And then I would include an excerpt from the next concert cycle, not the current one that we're working on, the next one. And maybe the excerpt is either musically challenging or technically difficult. How about for clarinet? Um, I would again include some scales that are a part of a playing test. I would probably include some excerpts from the Close A Technical Studies book. And exercises probably that work across the break would be good for everybody to have. Um, and then again, I would include excerpts from the next concert cycle, not the current one, that are musically or technically challenging. And even percussionists in my band would get a warm up. They would have scales, they would probably have uh, two 
mallet exercises or even four mallet exercises. Uh, they may there may also be included like a snare rudiment exercise that I assign students on Mondays and Wednesdays. You're at the snare, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you guys are at the snare, it, so that they have a variety of things to work on during the warm up process. They are not putting together instruments or getting things ready for the actual rehearsal rehearsal. They are working on fundamental skills that other students are working on on, on, in the brass and woodwind section. So the formula for these individual warm-up sheets that everybody gets, they all get one or two scales and a variety of octaves. They get an exercise from a standard technical study or a standard A2 book for their instrument and they get an exercise for working on something specific to that instrument for example like the clarinets the cross across the break stuff for trumpets i truly believe that low tone work and even pedal tone work help them develop upper register and then they also get an excerpt from music for an upcoming concert cycle and these warm-up sheets can be updated as often as you would like students in humboldt at humboldt high school received one or two warm-up sheets per concert cycle but i only handed them one at the beginning and one halfway through i didn't hand them a whole bunch of warm-up sheets at once i gave them specific focus and direction. The ensemble warm-up should address overarching fundamental musical and ensemble skills. We're not really working on technical skills here because the technical skills uh, vary depending on the instrument and, and their execution may vary very slightly instrument to instrument. So this is the overarching fundamental musical and ensemble skills, things that we can only do together, like work on intonation or breathing fundamentals is a really good one to do do together because everybody does the exact same thing. The, the diaphragm and the respirat- the rest of the respiratory system work the same person to person. Uh, you could work on balance and blend and you can work on musicality. If you need a little help uh, designing this, I, I highly recommend the 16 Bach Chorales arranged by Mayhew Lake. Uh, I think that is a fantastic exercise book through a variety of key areas, gives you opportunities to revise the chorales. Maybe you bop them or do them at different tempi, or maybe gives you ample opportunities to practice fermatas and breathing together and, and overarching phrasing or musical skills. Uh, I have also used Lip Benders by Ray Kramer, which is a little more basic and fundamental. There's also the Foundations for Superior Performance books by Jeff King and Richard Williams. I used those when I was teaching public schools, and what I liked about them was it was kind of like a, a, a design-your-own warm-up, and it had scale passages. It had different things for woodwinds and brass happening at the same time. It had a variety of musical excerpts that I could use. It, it, it was a good book series, and I, I think we invested maybe four or $600 in an individual book for each student, plus the conductor's book, and I found it to be very helpful. Uh, Dr. Holmes really likes the symphonic warm-ups for band by Claude Smith. And then also, we incorporate uh, or will be incorporating more Remington exercises. Remington exercises are basic fundamental interval and scale studies that you that you uh, add articulation to and you focus on intonation and vertical alignment of uh, articulations throughout the ensemble. And this is widely used 
especially in Texas, it's just a system that you use to get the band to play together. Now, let's pause for a public service announcement. Before you move on to the official rehearsal, you too must tune your ensemble. If there is one thing you do every single day to show how important and serious you are about it, it is tuning. You will fail student teaching if your group does not tune when I observe you. Now, while this is a silly reminder, uh, it's not such a silly concept because you, every single day, need to give an F for everyone, A for woodwinds, B flat for brass, in that order. And this is important because it, it emphasizes that this is the one thing that we do together every day to get things started. And it puts importance on playing with your best tone quality and playing in tune together and individually. You could also tune individual sections on a daily basis. Like on Mondays, you tune trumpets and saxophones individually. And then you tune the trumpets as a section and the saxophones as a section. And then on Tuesdays, you might tune the clarinets and euphoniums individually and then tune the clarinets as a section and the euphoniums as a as a section you need to do this on a daily basis to put an emphasis on okay this is important your tuning process if you do it this way will take three to five minutes guaranteed now while brass and woodwinds are doing this this is where percussion can make final adjustments to get ready for rehearsal. Tuning the timpani, getting out the toys, uh, finding the mallets that they need. So this is a, they're not wasting warm-up time, fundamental ensemble skill time, putting things together. They're doing it while brass and woodwinds are making adjustments to their instruments that percussion doesn't necessarily need to make to theirs. Now, you've seen how I rehearse, you've seen how others rehearse, and when you're designing your lesson plans, you're free to beg, borrow, and steal from others and claim it as your own. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. All you're doing is taking concepts that you've seen from others and just changing out the music. Uh, we're not going to go into a lengthy discussion on the different types of rehearsal methods because I really think in the reading that I'll share with you later on, Shelly Jagow has an excellent discussion of the different types of rehearsal methods that you could incorporate into rehearsals. And just because she mentions one rehearsal method doesn't mean you can't combine it with others. Dr. Chad Simons is the Associate Director of Bands at the University of New Mexico, where he directs all facets of the athletic band program. He teaches conducting lessons and he teaches courses in instrumental repertoire and marching band methods. Dr. Simons, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Harper. It's good to see you today. It's good to see you too. Glad to have you here. First question that we ask all of our guests, share with us your teaching experience. How, what was your path in life to get to where you are now? Um, I'll start with, I'll, I'll keep this mostly about um, professional experience, but I, I think it's important to note, I'm, I'm a Westerner. Um, I'm from... Uh, north central montana 
up on what we call the High Line, which is about uh, dead center of the state, about 30 miles south of the Canadian border. So rural Montana, which is really one too many words, but it's uh, uh, that's where I grew up. And um, up in that part of the country, the music scene looks considerably different from, from where I work now. I spent my youth uh, running around uh, the mountains, hiking and fishing and working on the family ranch. And then later on in my father's business, my first job was cleaning sumps and mowing grass, like, uh, like many of us had a, had a job like that when we were, when we were younger. Um, I, had, I was very fortunate to have very good teachers, um, music teachers, when I was in middle and high school. And um, like many people who are listening to this podcast, um, I was influenced by those folks uh, and surprisingly seemed to have some sort of a knack for um, music, and I loved it, uh, which I think is even more important, um, and decided to be a music educator and specifically a band director. I always wanted to be a conductor. Um, so I went to the University of Montana uh, after graduating high school. I have a Bachelor of Music Ed in, uh, excuse me, a Bachelor of Music Education from the University of Montana. Um, after that, I taught for a few years in southeastern Montana, a little town called Forsyth, Montana. I was a 5 through 12 band director, uh, as well as some general music. Um, after that, I went to Oklahoma State uh, to pursue a, an instrumental conducting degree. Joe Missile was my, my teacher there. Um, and um, was able, upon completion of that degree, to go get my first college job. I was 26. Uh, and that job was as associate director of bands at Idaho State in Pocatello, where I taught music ed and athletic bands for quite a while, for several years. And then I came to the University of New Mexico 16 years ago. I'm an associate professor here who teaches um, in our music education area. I run all of our athletic bands, um, associate conductor of the Wind Symphony here. And I've been here for, as I said, I think 16 years. So that is... Um, most of the story, I do have a doctorate in instrumental conducting from the University of Kansas, which is obviously where we met. And I pursued that degree after I gained tenure here at UNM and was able to take some time off um, from, from this particular job. So that's what brings us here. Um, I live in Albuquerque. I have a lovely wife who is an orchestra director. And um, we don't have children. We have Labradors because you can put them outside when they misbehave. Basically the same thing, though, right? Yeah, basically. Basically, that's it. <laughs> Would you describe for us your philosophy of education or your philosophy of music education? Sure. Um, and I think that's a great question because our philosophy of music education should be the source from which we answer the rest of the questions that we're going to get to today. So um, let's say that my philosophy of education and of music education in, in particular begins in a deeply held belief that, that music is very powerful for humans. And I believe it's a positive, powerful force. So um, the question is, all right, well, why and what is it that makes music powerful for people? Well, I would boil it down to... to um, a few things, but really I think it's that, that experience that all of us have had when we listen 
to a great piece of musical, we see great art, we get that tingle down our spine. That, that moment where we're struck by something very beautiful and crying about it, and we don't even necessarily know why. It's a very human moment. And that is, for me, it's a, that aesthetic experience is the power that, that music and actually, actually all great art brings to, um, brings to the table. And I think that experience makes for better people because it makes us more sensitive, makes us more appreciative of beauty in the world. It makes us more tolerant, both of ourselves and of other cultures and other people. It, it has all of those great effects and impacts. So for me, it's all about the aesthetic experience and obtaining that. And I find that my job then is to create experiences and safe spaces where we can undertake that, that pursuit um, in a serious way. So my job is to create those experiences and raise the aesthetic sensibilities of the people who are in front of me. Uh, and I'll stop there. We could go along, we could go on a long time about this, but I'm gonna put it in that nutshell for now. Great. To get to the topic of the episode now, why is it necessary for us to choose quality repertoire? So this actually goes right to the heart of the philosophy we were just speaking of, which is um, if we are there to raise the aesthetic ex experience and the, the, ex the aesthetic sensibilities of the people we work with, because we believe in that power and, and that, um, that experience, then we have to put things in front of them that will challenge them and will further that goal. So I, I equate it to this. Joe Missile was fond of saying this back 20 years ago when I was studying with him. It's musical nutrition. It's the difference between mother's milk and Kool-Aid. One will spur musical growth. The other one just rots your teeth. So when we talk about quality repertoire, that's how I like to frame it. It's, it's, it's somewhat about function in what we do. Um, and, the, and that function being, does this piece accelerate the growth of the students in front of us? That's what the, the, the term quality uh, in this setting, I think, um, really means to me. Good. Can you kind of dive a little bit more into the term musical quality? What, how do you define musical quality? Absolutely. So uh, I think you have to, you have to take a, a, a broader view um, of some of this. So I think that musical quality, uh, that definition is, is really defined by master works, cornerstone works in our library. Okay. They set a baseline, these master works and something for us to aspire to, right? Um, the quality in our setting very often is a measurement of how a particular work elevates the aesthetic sensibilities of students and whether there are better and more efficient choices that we can make in that goal, right? So the term musical quality 
uh, for me is in music education of uh, a lot about that particular function. Um, I'm going to stop there. Does that make sense, Ben? You might have to edit me on that. Oh, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's great. Okay. I, I, can, I can keep going on this, but the one question sort of leads to the other, which is obviously how you built this. So yeah, I'll shut up now. Stop it. You're creating editing work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not going to edit any of this out. Uh, <laughs> what right. is the difference between what, what you, I think I've heard you call it training music or what I call pedagogical music and the difference between that concept and more artistic music? So this is where we, we start to really get into the weeds of this. Um, training music um, functions like an etude, okay? An etude works on a specific skill or set of skills, and it is written for that purpose. Now, there are elements of artistry within etudes. There have to be in order for us to work on that. Artistic music is music that exists solely for the purposes of expression and appreciation and beauty without regard to questions like, um, you know, how do we develop this skill or that skill or how hard is this versus how technically difficult is that or any of those considerations. Artistic music exists for itself and exists to be beautiful without considering whether or not it's challenging to play. So I would, I would define the difference that way. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't and there, and there can't be and there should be um, artistic elements in all of the quote-unquote pedagogical music that we, we play. What it does do is recognize the fact that your seventh grade band is not going to sound like the Eastman Wind Ensemble right? Um, simply because they can't. They, they don't have um, the experience in life. They don't have the technical ability. They don't have the, the ability just to make a tone like that um, or, to, or to play those sorts of, of things. So that doesn't mean that what, they, that what that seventh grade band does can't and, sh and won't be artistic. It just means that um, Pedagogical music has a slightly different function, and once again, that is to propel those students to a higher level of aesthetic and artistic understanding. So how can you determine musical quality in an efficient manner? So what I like to do, um, let me back up for a moment. We've all been to Midwest, right? Fantastic conference in, in Chicago. If you haven't been there, go. Not this year, next year. <laughs> right. Yeah, not this year. We hope next year. Yeah. Uh -huh. Anyway, it's, um, it's a place where a lot of people go and they, and they look at scores, and there are always these big booths. Um, back when Shattinger Music was still working, obviously, and we used to spend a lot of time there, and there have been other people that have picked that up uh, and provided a, a great service for everyone. But I used to notice when I would go there that the idea of actually reviewing music or deciding if you were going to get into the weeds on a, on a piece um, wasn't happening in a very depthful way. What would happen, or what I, what I would see is people would go up to a stack of music, they'd pull up a score, 
that was marked probably within the grade level they were looking. And they open it up and they look at the instrumentation and they decide there were there was piano in it or harp or they didn't have a second oboe. So they would put it right back down. Now, the instrumentation is obviously a legitimate thing to consider when we're looking at programming for our uh, ensembles. But it shouldn't be the first, and it sh definitely shouldn't be the only. And what I started noticing in, in the students here and in some of the, the colleagues that I have at the high school level here in, in Albuquerque was um, a lot of folks were never getting much beyond that particular moment of picking the work up, looking at the instrumentation and reading the notes in it, okay? So I would ask them, well, why? Why aren't we getting further into these, these pieces? And the answer is both high school and middle school band directors are so doggone busy that they don't have, often have a lot of time to do a deep dive into the repertoire they might be choosing. Um, that's unfortunate, but it's true. So if you're going to pick something um, that has um, a high degree of quality, we need to be able to let these people, or give these people a, a mechanism so they can do it quickly, and they can do it efficiently, something that doesn't take hours and hours and hours. So what I came up with was just, all right, what are the things that we can look at, the quality criteria? sort of the, the variables that we can look at specifically and put on a rubric and rate, you know, one to 10, this is good, this is bad, those things. So those quality criteria, um, and most of mine are very reminiscent of the Osling study, which I'm sure you probably talk about, um, Ben, with, with these folks, and his list of, you know, how we choose a repertoire of artistic merit, right? Um, but how do we boil those down so that we can put them on a rubric and make this more efficient for people? Well, what do you look at? Well, the first thing I look at is variety. Is the work sufficiently unpredictable? Because you can, you can use the term variety, and then you can go down this list of criteria, dynamics, rhythmic material, tempo, instrumentation, key, timbre, texture. You can measure those things very quickly. Is there a variety of dynamics? Either there is or there isn't right? Or there might be a, a sort of a sliding scale on that. Um, but you can go through fairly quickly through a piece of grade four band repertoire, grade five band repertoire, grade two band repertoire, and look at that and rate it one to 10. You can look at the orchestration and see, all right, does the work demonstrate a high level of craftsmanship? Um, are there 2D passages? Are there solo passages? Are there small group pairings? Um, are there interesting colors and textures? Are the individual parts well done and interesting to play? You can look at that very quickly in a score and in a matter of a few minutes, make some judgments about that. Does the, does the piece, and this is an Ostling, another Ostling criteria, does the, the piece have some sort of recognizable form? And he always makes the, the you know, the uh, the distinction between having form and having a form, right? Pieces that have a form uh, aren't necessarily, that's not necessarily what we're looking at, but does the piece, uh, is, it, is it well conceived so that we can see repetition, contrast, and variation? 
And those three broad categories give us some sort of coherent form we can look at and teach. Speaking of coherency, is the work coherent and consistent in its style and musical ideas and technique? All right. So um, is it, uh, if you look at it quickly and you're singing through it in your head, does the, is, is the piece schizophrenic? I mean, does it make sense? Is it, is it consistent in the style? Is it consistent in its, in its parts? Uh, one of the things that I, that I would always blows my mind is you have a grade three piece of band rep, but on the last note of the piece, the trumpet will go up to high D, you know, just nonsense like that, where the, the parts themselves aren't coherent or inconsistent or consistent in technique or style or musical ideas. You can look at that pretty quickly and see. Ingenuity, this takes a little more time, but if we're this far down the list, can we look at melody, harmony, and rhythm and see that there, is, there are creative elements within um, those, um, those um, elements themselves? Or is it the work of a, of a creative mind? I think is how a lot of the papers on this have, have written about it. Um, or is it just something that's been ripped off and completely derivative? That takes a little bit longer to look at, uh, but um, is a very important um, few minutes to spend while you're making the, the initial judgment. Are, is there emotional content? Does, if you're listening to this thing by this point, are there moments that are aesthetically effective for you, for the players, or the audience that's going to come uh, and hear the piece. Um, if you're if you've made it this far, you know chances are you you've grabbed hold of a recording um, and you're able to uh, make that determination fairly quickly. And most importantly, for for our particular purposes here, does the work offer opportunities for growth? And this is one of Frank Battisti's criteria that he puts very well: musical skills and knowledge, expressive skills, technical skills. And of course, the big one, understanding and appreciation. So what I do is I take these criteria and I put them on a rubric. And I can look through relatively efficiently a score and mark yes, no, yes, no. And if I hit one that gets a, if I hit one of these areas that gets a relatively low score, I might stop there. And that is a perfectly good reason to do that. Um, However, if I continue down the list, I'll find that, all right, this is a piece that is looking like it has some merit. At that point, I don't mind putting a little bit more time into um, making a programming decision. So when, I come, when it comes to musical criteria in an efficient sort of manner, um, that's how I approach it. That's the mechanism that I give our music educators. It is not the be all end all, it is meant to be an efficient tool that gets us beyond whether or not we have second elbow. Great. Who deserve? Uh, I'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> who determines the grade level of a work and what criteria do they use? And is grade level a helpful uh, criteria to use in evaluating the quality of a work? Um, interesting thing about grade level. 
there is no objective way to actually set grade level. So uh, is setting a grade level um, useful? Well, it, it can be very generally in that if I'm teaching an eighth grade band and I know their abilities um, and I, I see a piece of music that is listed as grade six, well, knowing that is useful to me because it saves me some time because I know that I'm not going to be able to play that piece, right? So in a general way, grade level is useful in sort of directing us to a, to works with you know, specific or not specific, but general parameters of difficulty, right? Um, the problem is beyond a general sort of sense, um, there is no specific criteria. So um, I, I think you and I talked about this a, a while back. I, I, one time I called the UIL, University of Scholastic League in Texas, because I was interested in this question. And I, I got on the phone with uh, with someone and asked this question about, you know, how do how does the UIL actually set grade levels for um, their their lists, which are required to play off of in Texas? And the answer I got was, well, we trust the judgment and experience of our board members. Well, that's cool. <laughs> it's also extremely nebulous. So when determining a grade level, I find it to be of, of very limited use, right? Um, that the, the determinations of a grade level to be of very limited use. Another example, like the GIA books, very good books, teaching music through performance and band. The grade levels in, in even in book one, are very suspect a lot of times, not because the people who were writing about the works didn't know how to sort of grade those things more effectively, but because they had a certain amount of space when they were publishing that book and they wanted to fit everything in that they wanted to be in that book one, right? So the grade level was sort of the last consideration. So even in that great reference that we have, it's what, eight, 10 books now, um, the grading of the pieces is a little bit suspect. Well-intentioned, but suspect. So we have to be able to, um, in my view, do with a grade level, in a, choosing an, an ability-appropriate piece, we have to do the same thing with that that we sort of did with the quality criteria when we initially begin studying the work, which is we set out a list of um, you know, criteria, and we can work through that list relatively quickly on a rubric uh, and decide if this thing is, is not challenging enough, too challenging, or is sort of in a sweet spot for us. Um, the criteria, I'll just get into the criteria, Ben, since, since we're talking about it. The, the criteria, once again, are relatively measurable things quickly. The first one, range. How high is how high is the tessitura for each instrument, okay? And are there specific difficulties associated with the range of the parts? Dynamics, and, and not that whether or not there are any, we've already, you know, we've gone through the piece, we know that there's a variety of dynamics, dynamics, but how quickly do they shift? How quickly do they come at you? Are they terrace dynamics? Are they crescendo diminuendo? And how quickly do they shift is actually um, the measurement that I use and how difficult it is to execute dynamically that particular piece, right? It's very difficult to go from fortissimo to pianissimo in two beats versus 
over four beats. And then if it repeats, some sort of gesture like that repeats very quickly, well, that makes that piece more difficult, right? And it would go up the range on the scale for dynamics. Technical difficulty is the next one. And that boils down to really um, how many notes and how fast are they, right? How fast do you have to move your fingers? How fast do you have to move your embouchures in your, in your um, you know, manipulate your instrument? Um, it can also be a, um, related to the next criteria, which is tempo, how fast or slow. Well, slow music also, as we know, comes with its own challenges. Um, long notes are very, very difficult to sustain sometimes, particularly for younger players. So if I'm looking at choosing a work for a young group, how long they have to hold a particular note um, is a consideration. That goes along with the next criteria, which is how long is the piece, which is duration. Do we have enough strength? Does my seventh grade oboe player have enough strength in their embouchure to make it through nine minutes of a slow work, right? And that'll depend on, on your own specific um, situation. So uh, technical difficulty, tempo and duration are sort of related, but I put them on the rubric separately. Next one is melodic content. Well, what about melodic content makes, makes some melodies more challenging than others? Well, is it moving in stepwise motion? Is it moving in leaps? Um, does it have, is it, is it diatonic or not? Those are melodic considerations that affect how hard it is to play. Same with harmony, the harmonic content. I, I put this down for our kids as the level of crunch, okay? Do you have very close harmonies? Um, or conversely, but sometimes even more difficultly, are they very more difficult? Are they very open? Do you have an exceeding amount of open fifths and octaves, things like that that you have to tune, okay? Rhythmic content. This is one that I spend a fair amount of time on. I was trained as a percussionist, so um, this one comes really naturally to me quickly. But rhythmic content, the first thing that I look at to determine how difficult something might be is whether or not it's in simple or compound meter, right? We all know that compound meter is more difficult to teach and more difficult to feel because the students aren't necessarily exposed to compound meter as much as they are to simple meter. Um, the ease of reading the rhythmic content. In other words, how black are the notes? Um, depending on how the meter works in conjunction with the rhythm, you can have a very black page that rhythmically isn't very hard, but it looks hard because the notes are very, you know, 30 seconds and 64th notes versus in 16th notes and 8th notes. So how does that relationship between meter and the way that the composer actually wrote the rhythmic content, um, how, does that, how does that work and, and it can make a piece easier or harder to understand in reading? Intricacy, in, excuse me, intricacy across the ensemble. How often do we have pocketed rhythms, um, things that are passed around quickly, right? Those are things that increase the level of difficulty. And finally, uh, rubato. How much rubato was used? Um, slowing and speeding, um, slowing down, speeding up together. 
adds levels of challenge to a particular piece of music. So I can look at rhythmic content really quite quickly um, and use that to see um, where I think um, a piece might fall in the you know, sort of grading system, okay? After rhythmic content, I get to solo playing. Who's playing for how long? Does it match up with my strengths or weaknesses? Can it be edited or covered by another instrument if it uh, is something that I'm not in a position to handle? The next thing I look at, extra musical references. Um, extra musical references, A, I look at, is the reference appropriate to the age group with which I'm working? Um, I find that, or I found that mature extra musical references, programmatic references, can be explained at certain levels to younger groups. Where we get sometimes, I think, into trouble is if we have a very basic or silly extra musical programmatic reference, and we're trying to do that with more mature students. I think that, that's one that, that really can be problematic. Um, but I also want to throw out, this also relates very directly to the quality criteria. Um, and it's a personal pet peeve of mine, not a pet peeve so much as a, as a red flag sometimes. If I see a piece that is completely formally dependent on an extra musical reference, that's a red flag for me. And um, so... And that's not to say that programmatic music is bad. It is to say that a lot of programmatic music in certain grade levels I've found tends to not make great sense formally once you remove the story. And if that's the case, I think that piece is suspect um, to be put in front of the kids that I have in front of me. Next quality criteria, we can go back to any of these if you want to touch on them, um, Next quality criteria, just a couple left. I look at articulation. I look at long, short, I look at the speed with which notes come at us and the repetition of single notes, right? Do we need to double tongue or not? Then I particularly spend some time looking at single read articulations and how often they have to play staccato. Uh, because that, that's the one that I find the single reads in particular really, really struggle with. Um, I, look, I look for necessary double tonguing and triple tonguing um, in, in certain places. Uh, and that particular category, once again, can make a piece more difficult very quickly, depending on what my strengths or weaknesses are. Uh, next one, I look at texture. Is it homophonic? Is it monophonic? Is it polyphonic? Monophonic, easy to play together. Homophonic. Next one, maybe not in tune, but um, easy, you know, as an ensemble to play together. It's monophonic music is something that's usually at a lower grade level. Homophonic, this idea of melody with accompaniment, right? That adds a level of difficulty and then we, we get back to harmony and melody and how those work together. Polyphonic music is by far the hardest usually because it takes the most independence. Um, these are broad generalizations, but they can lead us down the path of how difficult something may or may not be. Finally, and I touched on this earlier, I look at the, the consist, pardon me, the consistency of the required technique throughout the individual parts. I mentioned that trumpet player who plays the high D at the end of a piece. Those are things that, that jump out very quickly um, when you go through 
a score and you're trying to determine how difficult it is. So once again, I put these on a rubric. You can go through a score and spend time looking at each element and rate it. You know, on a scale from one to five or one to 10, whatever you would like. One to five actually works better, I think, than one to 10 statistically. Um, and that can give me some idea of how difficult a piece may be. That judgment is more useful than a generic label of grade three, grade two, because it allows me to play to the strengths and weaknesses and or the content I want to teach to a specific group. That was a long-winded answer, but there you go. But I think it was a great answer, which is why I didn't interrupt. You were, you are talking about the same things that I try to hammer home to my students. Uh, Outstanding. Very similar process to evaluating the, uh, the age appropriateness or ability appropriateness of a piece. And also at the same time, evaluating its artistic merit for the age level that it's written at. Right. Exactly. And boy, um, artistic merit for the age level or the, or the ability level it's written in, that is really the key uh, to all of this. And I'll just, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop ahead, I guess, Ben, you led me to the next question. Go ahead. The, the students know exactly where this is going to. Okay. So, you know, can a, can a training piece be a training piece and be artistic? Um, at the same at the same time, and how does a like a middle school band experience artistry and music? The the first definite answer to your question is yes. Not only can they be can it be a training piece and artistic piece at the same time? I would submit that in order for us to further our goal of raising the aesthetic sensibility of these kids, that it must be artistic uh, and training at the same time. But there are three sort of things that I think are, are important. And I, I, I spent a little time with this question. So how, how does that actually work? It requires three things to be both. Number one, it requires an understanding by the people who are in charge, the teacher, that artistry happens on a sliding scale. And what I mean by that is what's artistic to a seventh grader should not be the same thing that's artistic to me. I'm a 46-year-old dude with three degrees in music. The seventh grader who's coming to learning to playing their horn and learning about music, you know, from their second, first year maybe, is going to have an artistic sensibility that's different. I, you and I were talking last week, one of my favorite band pieces of all time is, um, is called Spooks in Space. Not because it is particularly, you know, um, dumbfoundingly complicated or artistic. Uh, it is simply one of the first pieces I ever remember playing. And it was artistic for me because you got to turn the snare drum off. And you played on the tom. And boy, that was the height of, of artistic expression when I was in sixth grade. I've come away since then. Uh, at least, at least I like to think I have. So, you know, uh, we need to understand that the aesthetic sensibility of that sixth grader is different than mine. And my job 
is to raise the aesthetic awareness and sensibility and ability to appreciate of that kid. Okay, so I need that understanding. The second thing that I need for a piece to be both training and artistic um, is actually my favorite criteria out of the, um, the Acton Osling um, study. And I think it's like number nine. And, and it's the one about the, the music not being pretentious. It's, it's genuine to its idiom um, and, and not pretentious. And I was just a, when I first read that many, many years ago, I wasn't quite sure what it meant. What it means is this. Is, is, the, comp- is the composition written in a way where it recognizes what it is? Did the, did the composer write it for a specific intent and recognize it for what it is? And do the players recognize it for what it is? In other words, do we think Spooks in Space is equivalent of Beethoven Five? Where we get into trouble is when we actually think that what we're playing and doing is of higher artistic merit than it actually is, right? And this is where bands sometimes kind of get into trouble. If, if we recognize spooks in space is spooks in space and we enjoy it and we understand that it's on the road to a higher level of understanding, then it's perfectly okay for us to consider that artistic. If, however, there are three chords in the piece and it's something you might hear on the radio and this is all we're doing and we're pretending to be Beethoven 5, then that's not okay. That brings us, so, so a sliding scale of artistry and understanding that the piece, neither the piece, the composer or the performers are pretentious about it. And finally, and I just touched on it, is this piece done in the pursuit of a higher level of aesthetic sensibility? Do we understand, are we continuing to work to raise um, our artistic standards? If you put all of those three things together, humbly, and you enjoy what you're doing, then a training piece is absolutely artistic for the people who are playing it, and that's okay. It's necessary. I am 100% agree. And you and I think about it very similarly on this front. Great minds think alike, Dr. Harker. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least our minds think alike. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> nothing great about mine, but maybe yours. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for being on the podcast today. Do you have any parting thoughts related to repertoire selection, artistry, or anything else that you want to leave my students with? Um, You know, I go back to two things, if I can, Um, to to end where we started, which is our philosophy of music education is what guides all of these uh, questions and answers. And I I hope that the, the folks who are listening noticed that when I started talking about my philosophy of music education, I didn't begin it with a discussion of teamwork and cooperation and, um, you know, those sorts of what I, what I call sort of utilitarian benefits of what we do. That's not to say that those things aren't great. 
We need a sense of community. We need a sense of perseverance. We need to learn to be resilient. And our activity in music education teaches a lot of that. But the reason I don't start my philosophy with that or even mention it really is because if you were to ask a volleyball coach the same question, they would, they would give you that answer. And I think that what we do, and I'm not knocking volleyball or any other coach, but what we do has an element that surpasses um, those sorts uh, of considerations and those sorts of benefits. And that power of, the, of attaining an aesthetic experience uh, and pursuing them over the course of our lives uh, is important. And for me, uh, I think it's imperative that a music education major um, or a music educator that's out practicing in the field try to take that sort of 10,000 foot view of creating better people who, who are going to create a better community and through that, we're going to create a better world. Because if you're functioning from concert to concert to concert, which is what I used to do um, a lot, what you're going to find is that you burn out because the job will always take more than you can give it. And when you run into a COVID pandemic and all of those performances disappear, you might find that you really start to question the importance of what you do, unless you're taking that longer, broader, culturally inclusive, expressive, and aesthetic viewpoint. So hang in as you're listening to your podcast uh, in these unprecedented times, and, and remember that the journey is actually the destination. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Simons. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Your reading assignments this week are out of the Jagao Teaching Book, pages 167 through 190. This is chapter 24. You're going to be reading about rehearsal planning. You're also going to read uh, pages 41 through 62 out of the Rush Book. This is chapter 4, Understanding the Importance of the Warm-Up, and chapter 5, Incorporating Effective Rehearsal Strategies. I'm also going to put into Teams the H. Robert Reynolds article titled, The Repertoire is the Curriculum. Yes, I, I realize that we have read this before in almost every single one of my classes, but it's a good refresher. You're going to schedule a Zoom meeting with me, and I'm just going to check in to see where you are on warm-up uh, questions that you may have, uh, warm-up strategies, or rehearsal planning questions that you may have. Uh, please don't forget to sign up for those Zoom meetings sooner rather than later, uh, because my schedule does fill up as we get closer to uh, performance. Uh, I love seeing you guys in those Zoom meetings. Uh, please, please be free. Feel free to ask any questions that you may have that come up while you're doing observations, or things that just kind of pop up for you as you're doing these readings or listening to the episodes. I love you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Zoom, and I hope you have a good week. Bye, bye, guys. Mm-hmm.